Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we discover in verse 12, the reason for this chapter is that some of the people in the church were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. Based on the apparent emphases in the chapter, it would further appear that there was some question in the congregation as a whole as to whether this particular doctrine was essential or not. Could we hold a variety of views here? That may have been the gist of their question to the Apostle Paul. And we can certainly understand how such a question might have arisen in that particular context. Greco-Roman people had absolutely no cultural frame of reference for the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. Their own religions and philosophies generally assumed a strict dichotomy between body and spirit. The body was essentially seen as a prison for the spirit, as David Pryor puts it, Death marked the release of the hitherto captive soul to soar to the real world, of which everything on this earth is only a shadow, closed quote. So the afterlife for these people was about release from the body. And now here comes Christianity with the promise of bodily resurrection. And you can understand why there may have been some resistance to this particular idea. And we need to keep in mind that their experiences of the body would have been very different from our experiences today. They lived in a world without soap or deodorant, without modern medical treatment, without seniors' homes or modern dentistry. So the body was a weak and frail and decaying thing in most of their eyes. And they experienced death in a way that we don't today. They saw the body at its weakest and lowest. As young children, they probably helped dad carry grandma out of her room upstairs when she died. They smelled all the things that were released from her body when she died. They helped to burn her clothes and to wash the room after her passing. So they had a very realistic view of the human body, and it did not prepare them to embrace the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. Historian Ramsey McMullen says here, Resurrection in the flesh appeared a startling, distasteful idea at odds with everything that passed for wisdom among the educated, closed quote. And so, quite predictably, it appears that at least some of the people in the church at Corinth were wondering whether or not this particular doctrine could be backburnered. Could, could we perhaps agree to disagree here? Could we allow a diversity of views here? Could we at least go silent on this issue and keep the focus, as it were, on more culturally palatable views? That's the substance of their question. And in response, the apostle provides the most fulsome and ferocious defense of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Here Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the non-negotiable core of Christian doctrine. This is the doctrine. This is the gospel that you must persevere in in order to be saved. He says that we must believe that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Every word of that sentence matters. To call Jesus Christ is to identify him as the Jewish Messiah. But more than that, as the king of the whole world. That's part of the mystery that unfolds in the scriptures. That the Messiah will be too exalted a character to merely rule over the Jews. He will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The son of David but also David's Lord. To say that he died for our sins implies a sort of substitution and atonement. Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He had no sins. He lived a perfect life, and therefore his death could be offered as a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. This also implies that our sins constitute some sort of debt or obligation that has to be satisfied. Sin affects our standing with God, but thanks be to God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a non-negotiable aspect of the Christian gospel. That his death was in accordance with the scriptures reminds us that the Jesus that saves is the Jesus anticipated by the Old Testament prophets and explicated by the New Testament apostles. It is the Christ of scripture that saves not the Jesus of our imagination. It is also important for us to understand that he was buried. That part might seem a bit odd to us. Leon Morris says helpfully here, In such a brief statement, it is a little surprising to find this reference to Christ's burial. The early church was in no doubt about the reality of the death of Jesus, and the fact of burial is evidence of this. Closed quote. So the burial of Jesus is mentioned here to make it clear that the death of Jesus was real. It was not merely spiritual or symbolic. It was a physical death, and they put his actual body in an actual tomb. And he was in there long enough to verify that he did, in fact, die. Paul mentions that it was on the third day that he rose from the dead. Again, in accordance with the scriptures. Most commentators understand Paul to mean that the death and resurrection of Jesus was governed by the general thrust and flow of the scriptures. Everything was shaped, anticipated, and conditioned by the Old Testament. 
His death was the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. His resurrection reflected the hopes of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus recapitulated, embodied, and realized the overall scope and essence of the scriptures. Thanks be to God. From here, Paul moves on to the issue of attestation, particularly with respect to the reality of the resurrection, which was the matter in question. He says that Jesus appeared physically, bodily, really, to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, then to the twelve, then to five hundred gathered believers, then to James, the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, then to me, he says, last of all, as to one untimely born. Paul, of course, was late to the apostleship. In fact, he persecuted the church and opposed the spread of the gospel initially, until he himself was miraculously converted. Paul never forgot about that, and so he says, he worked harder than all the rest by the grace that God supplies. Nevertheless, the point is that there are numerous people who can testify to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Paul is careful to point out that many of these people are still alive, so you can go and ask them. This is not wishful thinking. This is not group delusion. Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And that is the fact that changed the world. So no, it is not an optional piece of the gospel. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here Paul is saying that whatever is true of Christ with respect to the resurrection is true for all believers. So if we drop the resurrection of Jesus, then we deny any hope of resurrection for ourselves. Our fate is tied inextricably to his fate. As the head goes, so goes the body. So this is not an optional piece of the puzzle, brothers and sisters. This is the whole board. This is the big picture. The resurrection is the linchpin. Look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He said that already in verse 3, but here he is even more explicit. He states emphatically that there is a connection between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the reality of our own forgiveness. The Pillar New Testament commentary puts it this way. Paul had pointed out that Christ died for our sins in verse 3. But if God had not vindicated him by raising him from the dead, there would be no reason to think those sins had been dealt with. Are you hearing that? The empty tomb is God's stamp of approval upon the life and death of Jesus Christ. It is God saying, this man was holy. This life was precious. This death is sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. So there is now an infinite payment waiting to be claimed by sinful debtors like you and me. 
It cannot be exhausted, but it must be claimed through faith. And that is exactly the point Paul makes in Romans 4, speaking of how Abraham's faith in God points us toward faith in Christ. He says that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, closed quote. If you believe what the empty tomb says about Christ, that he was God in the flesh, that he obeyed God perfectly in the flesh, that he paid for your sins in his body on the cross, if you believe that, which includes, of course, believing the things about God and about us that logically necessitate that, then the merits of Jesus' life and death are applied to your account before God. His death can be the death you owe God. His obedient life can purchase for you all the blessings of God. That's the promise of the empty tomb. That's the gospel. But if Christ has not been raised, then that promise is a lie. You are not forgiven. You are still a debtor. Your faith is in vain and you remain in your sin. That's what's on the line here when it comes to the doctrine of the resurrection. So it matters, brothers and sisters, whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. But thanks be to God, he did. Paul says that in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The concept of firstfruits may be somewhat foreign to modern-day Bible readers. In Bible times, when your vineyard started producing fruit, you would bring the first basket of that fruit to the temple as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The first basket was understood as a token of the whole. By offering the token to God, the whole harvest was thus understood as sanctified. That's the idea here. The resurrection of Jesus is the token of a larger harvest. That it was accepted by God implies acceptance of the whole. Because there is a living human being right now in the presence of God, we can be assured that all who are in Christ will receive that same welcome at the general resurrection. That's the idea here. Christ, our head, has ascended into heaven in a physical body. And where the head goes, the body follows. Jesus will come back to claim his people, and we shall be with him in the presence of the Lord in physical bodies. We'll get to that in just a moment. For now, Paul has talked about Jesus going up, and then later in the future, Jesus is going to come back down. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection... It is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself 
will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, this is language and imagery that these Roman Christians would have understood. Paul says that Jesus is like a general that goes out to reestablish the authority of the emperor. The general makes war against every rebel stronghold. When all has been thrown down and all brought into proper submission, then the general returns home and he himself kneels before the emperor that the emperor may be over all. So it is here. Paul pictures Jesus as the warrior who goes forth from God to defeat for God all the enemies of God. He restores order. He puts down rebellion. He makes peace. And then he sheathes his sword. He bows his knee and he puts all creation back under God that God may again be all in all. The story of redemption ends with God back at the center over a world in love with his goodness and grace. It ends with humanity under a human vice regent, Jesus Christ, filling all the cosmos with the beauty and the glory of the Lord. That's where our story is going, Paul says. And we can't get there if we attempt to bypass the cross and the empty tomb. The road to glory, the road to a renewed creation and a renewed and subdued cosmos travels straight through Golgotha only to emerge through the front door of the empty tomb. None of that is negotiable. None of that is optional. On the contrary, it is the one and only way home. Now, in verse 29, there's a fairly dramatic change in approach and tone. But of course, we've seen Paul do this before. He usually makes his big and and decisive argument first, and then he will supplement that with arguments from nature and experience. We saw him do that, for example, in chapter 11. And he's doing it again here. In verses 29 to 34, Paul is attempting to show that their own habits as a church and the life experiences of the apostles only make sense if we assume the reality of the resurrection. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, verse 29 is one of the most disputed verses in the entire letter. Part of the problem is that it's difficult to imagine that it could mean anything other than what it says. Reginald Perry, for example, says here, the plain and necessary sense of the words implies the existence of a practice of vicarious baptism at Corinth, presumably on behalf of believers who died before they were baptized, close quote. And I'm not sure how to avoid that conclusion. It does appear as if the church in Corinth was in the habit of allowing people to be baptized on behalf of friends and family members who had professed faith in Jesus, but who had then died before being able to be baptized. Maybe they came to know Christ on their deathbed, or maybe they were simply too old by the time they were converted. We don't know. But the point is, Paul is saying, why do you go to such lengths to get people baptized if you don't even believe in the resurrection? 
That sort of extreme effort only makes sense if you do. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that Paul approved of this tradition any more than it means that Paul wanted women to shave their heads back in 1 Corinthians 11. This is a rhetorical point he's making. He's saying, if you believe in it enough to do this sort of stuff, then you give evidence to yourself that the doctrine of the resurrection is certainly not optional or add-on to the Christian faith. It's not something we can go silent on because it might seem weird to our Roman friends and neighbors. This is bedrock. This is integral, brothers and sisters, as your own habits indicate that you understand. And and my own habits and my own experiences give evidence that I understand it as well. I put myself in danger all the time, Paul says. Why would I do that if I didn't believe in the resurrection? If I didn't believe in the resurrection, I'd be fat and drunk right now. That's what he says in verse 32. But I do believe in the resurrection. So I am serving and sacrificing in anticipation of that day. In verse 33, he's simply warning them, beware of allowing your associations to influence your theology. You are contemplating a a serious and significant edit of your Christian faith Because a piece of it seems odd to your Roman friends and neighbors. That is a very dangerous game to play. Do not do it. You're supposed to be teaching them, not them teaching you. I say this to your shame. Verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So now we get down to brass tacks. We get down to the practicalities. How will this work? What kind of body are we going to have? Paul seems to think that they ought already to know about this. He rebukes them in verse 36. So either he had already covered this in a previous letter or in one of the many sermons he preached to them while he was with them. Or they should have figured this out on their own by reason of the several accessible analogies that exist in nature. 
He refers to the analogy of a seed and the plant that comes from the seed. The point is that there is continuity and discontinuity. There is a genetic biological relationship between a particular seed and the plant that emerges from that seed. And you can see that every child who has ever planted a bean seed in a styrofoam cup has observed that. But of course, there are also very significant differences. The bean plant looks quite a bit different than the bean seed from which it emerged. So it will be with us. The future you will be somehow really, actually, and truly related to the present you, though with certain marvelous and wonderful differences. As Charles Hodge once put it, each friend shall recognize the individual characteristics of the soul in the perfectly transparent expression of the new body, closed quote. So you will be you only better and you will be recognizable as you to your friends and loved ones. So this is good, Paul says. We don't want to lose this part of the story. The resurrection is an integral and glorious part of the Christian gospel. In verse 50, Paul begins to work toward the climax of this glorious section. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality." When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says that not only is the resurrection a necessary doctrine, he also says it's a necessary experience. You can't enter the eternal kingdom of God in your present body. That's not going to happen. Your present body is part of the old fallen order. It has been diminished and affected by sin, so it needs to die. And if it doesn't die, and Paul says not everyone will die, some Christians are going to be alive when Jesus comes back. But one way or the other, you need to be changed. And you will. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. When Jesus returns to the earth, all the dead in Christ shall rise and be immediately transformed. Their ashes and remains will, like the Valley of Dry Bones, somehow be reconstituted, will somehow be part of a new, unstained, untainted, recreated work, a new you will arise out of those old ashes. And then shall come to pass the saying that is written, O death, where is your sting? On that day, we will see that death and the grave did not have the last word over our Christian friends and loved ones. On that day, we will see that those who died in faith were more than conquerors. They will rise victorious. They will have the last laugh. 
And if they are the body, then they will follow their exalted head up out of the valley, up out of the grave, out into the light and up into the kingdom, moving further up and further in forever. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And since that is true, Paul says, since this doctrine of the resurrection, since this gospel is gloriously, marvelously, reliably true, then be steadfast. Don't be influenced or co-opted by the culture. Stand your ground. Do your job and wait for the Lord who sees and who is coming. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab, and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.